0: Welcome to this episode of the Alien Familiar RPG Podcast. I am Clayton. My name's Kyle Perkins. I am Haley. Katie. Lenina. I'm Jordan. And before we get started, I just want to remind all of our listeners that you can find show notes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. And we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash alienfamiliar. And for our topic that we will be discussing today... We will be talking about how to create a campaign setting. To start us off, I have a a list of criteria that I go through every time I go to create a campaign setting. My bullet point list, and most of these are the things that we um, that I did at the start of our ba- our Abana campaign. Whenever we created the world for that, most of these are questions that um, I incorporated into that pregame. But these are things that I do every time I get ready to run a campaign, even if it's a setting that I am familiar with or that's a pre-generated setting, I go through this list and I figure out each one of these items. First, if I don't already know what system is the campaign going to be in, how long am I going to expect this campaign to last? If I'm making a new setting, why do I feel like I need to make a new setting? What is different about this setting that we are getting ready to play? Because even if you're playing in a, an established setting, each person, each game master does some things to make it their own. Even if it's, even if it's as minor as creating new NPCs, that's still world creation that you were doing at that point. I try to figure out what the scale of the campaign will be at the start and kind of what's the scale of the campaign will be at the end. I figure out how long I expect for the player characters to be in any in any one place, because if we're going to be essentially in one locale the whole time versus a globe-trotting adventure, it's going to impact the way that I design the world and the NPCs in it. Um, if I'm playing in a sci-fi or fantasy game, I decide what races are available, how prevalent those races are. Regardless of the system, I figure out how fantastical or how realistic this world is going to be. I set those boundaries. What I expect, what I think that the players are going to expect from the campaign. What are their um, initial preconceived notions about whatever game we're going to be playing, and how realistic are those? How accurate are those to what I'm wanting to do? How must I change the system that I'm going to be using? And... Um, after I've done all of those things, I create a short pre-game information block that I go over with the players. Usually I try to have about 10 talking points on that, and I usually have to trim it down to 10. Um, it's my personal opinion that if you have fewer than 5 points in your campaign, um, either it's not going to be compelling, or you haven't done enough work to basically flesh out the world in and of itself. Does anybody else have any items that they regularly go over whenever they're creating a campaign? If you have created a campaign. Mm-hmm. I should throw that caveat in there.
1: It's a minor thing, but I always play through a, a setting before I bring it up to my players to see if it's a fair world, or um, to see if it's fun in the first place. Play testing? I play test. Uh,
2: fuck that. I just drop my players into a goddamn hellscape of my creation. <laughs> I mean what, what's a fair world? That's also
1: No world. What, what is
2: playtesting?
1: <laughs> uh I've I, I playtest as in um I will take an NPC and I will put them through something similar to what I might expect from my players. And see if the difficulties are too high. See if they're trapped in a sewer, for example. If they're going to find a way out, is this map too confusing? Figuring things out for myself. Maybe I'll sit down with somebody else who's not a part of the game and run it through them to make sure that I'm not completely being disadvantageous to my players.
3: That's very ethical of you, but it's very time-consuming, I feel like.
1: I have a lot of (laughs) free time. I'm an art major.
3: Well... I, you know, I've always felt that, like, when it comes to that sort of thing, being able to improvise on the fly if you feel like something's too difficult or not difficult mm-hmm. enough um, is part of being a person that runs a game. Yeah. I think Jordan kind of knows a little more about what I'm talking about.
2: Two sentences and a doodle.
4: <laughs> yeah. I. When I'm thinking about a game that I want to run, especially if it's going to last a while, I try to think about it from the perspective of, like, a a director of a film and think of a handful of scenes or events that I think would be really cool that everybody would enjoy and kind of use those as like nodes along the line and, you know, leave gray space between for weird things to happen, but pretty much always try to fit in a couple of really cool things that I thought of that are, you know, thematically relevant to what I think the game is about. Um, but I'd, You're, you're much more systematic, Clayton, in the way that you do this than, than I do. Um, I often find it, uh, frustrating by about season or session two or three when the game clearly starts going in a completely different direction than everything that I had prepared for. So I try to just leave some things out there floating that I can just kind of plug into wherever the players are moving. The thing, because unlike a movie, all the players are writing the script. All the characters are writing the script as the story unfolds. So
2: something I do that is a little more granular than even Clayton's list. I don't do this all the time. But for a certain for certain types of games, I will actually plan out a fairly scripted first session, or if not a first session, then at least kind of introductory series of scenes in the eclipse phase game that I'm running. When you guys went to the bar and you um, sat down and there was a, uh, the head of a morph that you could sleeve into to like experience drugs, get drunk and then sleeve out to be sober again. That whole thing was exactly what I wanted the game to start off with. And so I had that down pretty granular after that. I I don't do that anymore ever. Uh, And I don't do this for every game. But for many games, especially ones where I have a, you know, kind of like you said, Jordan, a, a series of floating story events that I want to happen, they might happen in a certain order, they might not. But there's a story going on, it's not just kind of a sandbox world. I like to have a scripted
0: intro or tutorial or training session to the world. Yeah, whenever I run a campaign, not just creating the campaign setting, but running the campaign... I am so incredibly front loaded with all of my game prep. Like I, I, all of the stuff I said here; those are things that I do before the character, before the players start making their characters. Mm. After I know what what characters are going to be in the game over the next week or however long it is until the first actual full game session, that's when I put out the plot. That's when I do kind of what you did, what you say, Jordan, about like having plot points. Mm-hmm. and not really knowing how they're going to get from point A to point B. Just having a point here and a point here, and you know that somehow they're going to find path mm-hmm. there. And really, except for creating NPC stats, or if I need to create a dungeon, I'm done with my campaign prep at that point. I Like in our in our Bana game that we are just now getting ready to wrap up, except for um, this final battle that we are in, where I ha- actually had to pull some stats from a-, a book, I have not done any campaign prep in probably two months. Wow. None whatsoever. Bringing up NPCs,
4: that uh, I, I kind of think about NPCs in the same way that I think about those floating scenes. Um, I, I really don't like dealing with random, unnecessary NPCs, <laughs> the, you know, shopkeeper whoever, you know, walking down the road. Um, But significant story NPCs, I usually have a handful of them in mind, and I may not stat them all out unless it seems likely that'll be important. I'll I'll stat out whatever relevant things they might have um, for the scene that they're likely to pop up in. But I like to think of a handful of characters that... A lot of times it's characters that I would like to play, but I know wouldn't work in a, as a player in another game or wouldn't be fun for very long, but would be cool for a session or two. And so, you know, throw some characters like that around. And I don't know. I, I don't care for linear storylines much when I'm running a game. It, it seems like uh, it's more trouble keeping things in line than it's worth. I'd much rather have... Uh, tool bag full of resources that I can pull out of and throw at the players in a given session if it seems right then have things you know, scripted out. That's just my style. It's definitely not everybody.
0: Yeah, there is a very famous uh, quote relating to military strategy in that um, no plan survives first contact with the enemy Mm -hmm. and no plan in an RPG ever survives First contact with the player characters because they have if if you're running the types of games we play they have enough agency that they can completely change everything that you had planned in the first session yeah. mm-hmm. and take an a, take the entire campaign in a completely different tra- trajectory than what you had even anticipated.
1: Uh, yeah. Something about that. I am a very linear person. I'm very story structured. <clears throat> And the game that I'm currently running in, my players have completely subverted everything I planned, like put weeks and weeks and weeks of prep into. And I was really worried that I would be frustrated and I would be able to deliver them something that was interesting. But something that helped me is that when I fleshed out the world, I specifically knew – what was going on on all these other parts of the camp because it's set in a summer camp in the 80s. So I know if they're not going to go do the hike I've been trying to get them to do for four sessions, if they go do something else, I'll have something possibly there maybe that I can just pull from a hat. And I think it's really important when you're fleshing out your world to not just focus on the area of the world that your players are currently at. It might be nice to just know what's going on down the road or maybe at the... A Bunker down the street, just so just in case things pop up, I know that's super helpful for me, but then again, I overplan everything
2: I think you bring up a good uh, little tidbit about planning and and understanding the power structure in your campaign setting. Mm-hmm. If it is a summer camp in the eighties, then obviously Michael Jackson's gonna have a lot of power. Yes, um but in your summer camp, more importantly, the camp counselors are gonna have a lot of power, and if your players are all playing campers. Obviously, a camp counselor walks up to someone who is playing a camper, willingly, in a summer camp game. They're not going to, like, openly deck a camp counselor in the face for saying, Hey, let's go on a nature hike! <laughs>
1: yeah. So, They'll just fake an injury <clears throat> or get a kid drowned and then avoid it for four Unless, weeks. Unless,
3: you know, you're dealing with the players that we've talked about a little bit on this podcast sometimes that, you know, are, like, kind of the lone wolf. Yeah,
2: but again, if you if you understand the power structure of mm-hmm. your world, if they disobey a camp counselor, punch one in the face, drown a camp counselor, certainly then you bring in eighties police. And they, <laughs> They've got fucking three fifty seven magnum revolvers. <laughs> they do like the eighties wide leg cop stance, and, and and they don't fuck around.
5: Mm-mm. So it's
2: one dead kiddo. That's one dead kid. <laughs>
5: <laughs> so anyway, my, in
2: us. all seriousness, understanding the power structures of your world, knowing what tools you have, you, know, you mentioned like a toolbox of things, I love that analogy, knowing what tools you have to either uh, round up and like, you know, get your players to fall in line, or knowing how your players can subvert power and do free things and get out there and knowing how they might not get caught because you know the power structure of your world. Mm-hmm. Jordan mentioned about NPCs, how, you know, you have a couple that you like that you
3: would avoid underplay in a different scenario. Um, but they didn't work out for whatever reason, so you put them in the game. That's kind of what I like to do with certain NPCs. I I usually like to try to start off a campaign by giving each player an NPC, this sort of their NPC, and and not, like, in, like, a pet way or anything like that, but, like, one that's, you know, relevant to their background or their, like, you know, their story or where they're going or their goals. Um, because in that way, it sort of bridges the gap that you get when you're like planning a campaign session because you can already put some of those set pieces in there and know okay well if this person bonds to this npc like i think they will then this set piece now becomes easier to put into play you know so on and so forth yep. but if you know and if they don't you'd be like oh well maybe this set piece isn't as easy but now this brings up in a totally new dimension that i can play around with mm-hmm.
4: so i think one thing to to keep in mind when you're trying to put together like in your prep for a game it's gonna be different from one gym to the other, but think about the things that are difficult for you to improvise and build those things ahead of time and then leave the rest to flow with later on. Some people can come up with characters like crazy off the top of their head and act them out hilariously seriously, whatever you need to do. Other people are really not good at that and need to have somebody like laid out their personality and all that stuff. you know other people are great at describing scenery or whatever you know. Whatever your strengths are, let that flow naturally during the game. Whatever your weaknesses are, have something ready so that you don't have to come up with something and be on the spot. One more thing to keep in mind if you're someone who's adver-
2: adverse to improv is to dig through your rule book, dig through your handbook and, um, you know, post-it note, bookmark pages for certainly, like, chunks of rules that you know are complex or that you know you're going to need to reference Um, But also locations, and, um, uh, you know, most rulebooks have, like, a list of sample NPCs, or enemies, or monsters, whatever. Bookmark those things so that you can refer back to them later. Um, I like using PDFs so I can create all sorts of notes and bookmarks. Please don't dog-ear fold over your corners. I will find you. (laughs) I will undog ear those corners, and then I will fold over your ears so they're permanently creased. How do you dog-ear a PDF? No, a, a real book. If you have a real book, don't dog ear the corner. Put a post-it note in there, for God's sake. Fucking barbarian.
0: <laughs> it's my book. I'll do whatever the hell I want with I will it. fold your ears. Yeah, I'll fold them. Did you buy my book? Uh, it, it's, it's disrespectful to the book. Books have
2: great history behind them. Books,
0: books are inanimate objects. Books are possessions. <gasps> Take the- I can do whatever oh I want God. with my possessions.
1: But, um,
4: <laughs> You're right. Save your work when you spend a bunch of time on a on a campaign, whatever the hell it is. I got piles and piles of game notes from old games, and every now and then I'll go through and just drag a few bits out and use it for something else. There's no reason to go over things multiple times when you've already got some shit worked out. It's amazing how much of this stuff is... Really modular when you strip away the particular system rules. That's why I have a huge stack of character sheets from my years of gaming, just in a
2: mm-hmm. pile, in a folder. Pull them out. Mm-hmm. Random characters, you need one? Dig through the stack.
0: Oh, yeah, I've used lots of old player character sheets. <laughs> in- initially, Dropbox, but then later, Google Drive and Microsoft OneNote. Those revolutionize the way I create my games, the way I plan my games, the way I keep material for my games because I can I can put it down, I, and I always have it, no matter where I am. I've got it on my smartphone. I have access to it.
5: Google Drive is a literal lifesaver. Yeah. yeah. Any cloud storage device for writing, and it automatically yeah. saves, so you don't forget about it. And it's yeah, I'm just about amazing. to get
4: somebody to go through and digitize all my old game notes. Get rid of the fucking... No, Haley. No, Haley.
3: Haley, no. Haley, Please. Um, I'm, I'm kind of weird when it comes to that, because I definitely do use Google Drive for almost exclusively, uh, you know, stuff related to games. Um, but when I'm running a game, and, and the people here that I've run for can attest to this, I, I still run it out of a notebook. I don't know why. I just sort of... That's how I started and kind of
2: kept doing that. When it helps keep me focused, I think. When I'm brainstorming, I use notebooks. It's really easy for me to try to brainstorm and take notes on a computer or, you know, a tablet phone... And then all of a sudden, I just type in www.re, and then Reddit pops up, and now I'm distracted. <laughs> uh, it's easy. And so a notebook, for some reason, it's really nice and organic to just do initial brainstorming on a notebook. I, I definitely feel you there.
5: It also clicks better when you're writing as well. It's been proven. Hmm.
0: So what do you all do for inspiration while you're gearing up for your campaign? Um, what I always do, and what I had at the before we even started Abena, was I had a movie marathon at my place where everyone here was invited, where we watched movies that either met the themes or had something to do with the campaign that we were getting ready to play. I have been doing that since I started game mastering back when video stores were still a thing and VHS was still King. I would go to the local video store and rent five movies for $5. (laughs) And over the course of five days, just binge watch horror movies or fantasy movies or whatever else we were getting ready to play. VHS is just the king in exile. It's coming
1: back. (laughs) There are two things that I do a lot. Specifically, I like to draw. I'm gearing up to run the fifth rendition of Vampire the Masquerade for my other group. (laughs) And for that, I I know there's a lot of them. Um, I drew movie posters for all of them. And then for the one that hasn't come out yet... And it's been really interesting because then I get their feedback on what they want out of this or what they speculate, and then I can build the world around their anticipation and expectations. And the other thing is music playlists. All of my players in my other group are very – we have, (laughs) like, records of all these things, and we'll share them. We have uh, individual playlists for individual characters because we're extra, but it's really helpful. So I know the feel of that world. If I need background music, if I need things that have lyrics that stick out to me, that really inspire me, I can literally pull a lyric and use it to describe a setting. I find it to be super helpful to know the sound of that world. And plus it's something that's easily accessible to other players that isn't spelling things out for them. Because music's easily interpreted.
4: I like listening to music of a relevant genre while I'm writing ideas for the game. I've never had characters that had Theme music, like Pro Wrestlers or something. Oh, <laughs> don't worry. We, we had the
1: entire Pro Wrestling <clears throat> one-shot for this game. Ooh, it was it was choice.
3: I also listen to music. I think that's kind of a, a pretty standard one for everyone that's writing a, <clears throat> that's writing a uh, game. I tend to try to knock the NPCs out first, uh, actually. And, and I know I've mentioned on previous podcasts that I'm pretty NPC-centric when it comes to games. Mm-hmm. But that sort of helps me sort of like the, what the movies were doing for you, Clayton, were sort of inspiration. You know, I'm coming up with some like vague concepts for characters and being like, okay, how do they fit into this world? What can I do with them? Oh, well, if they're doing this in that world, well, then that means this about the game or something like that. And it sort of helps me flesh everything out and think it through. So they're kind of the inspiration for me, um, along with like listening to music. But I don't know. I think I'm kind of alone in that one.
0: Yeah, I also... Do good a good bit of NPC prep, but my NPC prep is mostly relegated to finding the voice for important NPCs. Mm-hmm. Like in our current game, I had a Sararax voice before we even started the campaign, <laughs> and I've enjoyed bringing that out whenever either he or his minion has uh, has come into play. Every time you do that, it makes me want to cough. <laughs> Every
5: time yeah. you.
0: Do that with your throat. Do what with my throat? <laughs> yeah, God. yeah that, that one. It's very
2: good. Um, Just before we depart chill. too far from music, does anybody have any good album recommendations for particular genres? Power metal for fantasy. <laughs> yeah. And and, and
1: I'd also good say shit. anything Celtic for
2: fantasy.
1: <clears throat> punk rock grunge for anything in the vampire world of darkness realm.
2: When I'm doing
3: horror... I like to listen to a band. They're called Midnight. Min, wow, Midnight Syndicate, um, and they do sort of some spooky kind of instrumental tracks. Also, and just you know, I mean, I'm a huge sucker for like early nine or like not late '90s, early 2000s survival horror video game soundtracks. Hmm. Those will help a lot with me too. Silent Hill, Resident Evil.
0: And Spotify is awesome for video game soundtracks. I know all of Midnight Syndicate is on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Most music that I want to use as inspiration or we actually use in our games, we use Spotify for all of that. Sponsor us. Sp- <laughs> Spotify. Sp- sp- spon- sponsor
2: us. Uh For post-apocalyptic stuff, I can't recommend Nine Inch Nails enough, slash just Trent Reznor in general. Uh, The Fragile is a fantastic soundscape of bleak sadness and industrial (laughs) decay, and Ghosts 1 through 4 is totally atmospheric, no lyrics, um, just really surreal soundscape-type ambient music. Um, Also, there's a band called uh, This Will Destroy You, that does totally instrumental post-rock type stuff that's really good for any kind of, like, epic but kind of in a dark way stuff you're planning to do. Dark dark epic, you need (laughs) to say. Dekepic. Dekepic.
1: Who do you use for your um, Eclipse Phase music?
2: (sighs) Sci-fi is so bread and butter for me, I don't really listen to music to get in a sci-fi mood. There's one album, actually, that I would listen to if I was, like—and I've used for, like, writer's block for that sort of uh, genre— uh there's a russian post rock band called mooncake and they have an album called lagrange points that is oh, very like very the, very uh, spacey astral bodies
0: yeah yeah so uh, you're leaning pretty pretty heavy on progressive rock
2: um not not prog rock but post rock genres don't matter but wow, le- is less, this a music podcast
3: less <laughs> less
2: rush more like swells and instrumental and, like, you know, uh, non-traditional, um, talking song structures without lyrics and, um, weird time signatures. So, yeah. So, I mean, Prague and... We're to stop. we to stop. Um, real back.
1: So I think <clears throat> take a note for music is your time period. Uh, listen to people not of... Who were popular at that time, but people that were producing music at that time. So instead of looking at the top 100s, I'll, like, go all the way back and, like, who are the major producers who were people who weren't very prominent, so that way I I know where I could pull from this world, so it's not distracting my players if I play it or if I use it. Uh, Plus, it educates me more about the universe that I'm setting something in. Just look at who's making the music, not who's singing.
2: If you're ever using the Book of Erotic Fantasy, I would suggest just nothing but Depeche Mode. It's like, real, like, sweaty 80s fucking... There's
3: a, a compilation <laughs> album called uh, 80s Porn Music Volume. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, and it's, you know, by various artists. Uh, and it's just a... Just really, for getting down dirty, you know. That's pretty great. Oh, man. Very if we're cheesy.
5: done with uh, the music inspiration thing, um, I have another type of inspiration that I use for just general writing, not specifically... Game making. We're only
0: talking about role-playing games here, though.
5: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and even in just in general, like, talking about it with somebody. I know that when Haley was building up her world, we had, like, a, a one-on-one kind of, like, talking back and forth about what's good, what's bad, where to go. And just general conversations and day-to-day life always inspires me to create any form of media and or game. It's how I, the only game that I never ran, got inspired, was via real world, but we've talked about that before. But just taking things from your general surroundings and turning it into something else, I think is very inspiring, often.
2: I like to people watch.
5: Yeah. It's good for
2: thinking a good character is (laughs) whatever you're writing for. Go to a convention, grab a beer, and look at all the strangeness. It's great.
1: (laughs) When I was first studying playwriting, they gave us an assignment where we had to walk out into the city and we had to eavesdrop on people's conversations and write them down. And I was around like 13 by the time I was doing this. So they literally tell you to like go out and stalk people's conversations, but you get the most amazing gems. So just like sit in a restaurant, go through the park, be kind of creepy, but don't get caught. And also don't hurt anybody.
2: I just go in a crack dance. I was a 13 year old, like, playwriting kid. I just go sit in a crack dance.
1: No. Awesome. Uh, I went, I went to the, um, I was, it wasn't the Bowery, but it was like another block thing. And I found someone talking <clears throat> about how they were sleeping with a dancer in Oklahoma, but they were married and they were very confused about it. And, um, they're just like talking about leaving like their eight partners. And I was like, what is going on? It's a great day. Made
2: great yeah, right there. You just hear a lot of talk about crack. Actually, it's kind of boring. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> you know, when's the next crack fix coming? Do you have any crack? I wish I had some crack. Yeah, yeah, I could go on. <laughs> uh, really, though, people watching is great. Go to a convention. Go, go to a coffee shop. Sit down. Bring a notebook and get out of your, get out of your house. Get the fuck out of your house. <laughs> Like get out of your apartment, get out of your house. Go for a walk. Uh, go go for a walk. You know, I'm I not saying that. I'm not saying you have to go be around people because I you know, you know what you do. You, if you don't like people, that's fine. But don't just sit in your house. You're gonna you're gonna feel stifled, like you know. And if you are in your house, if for some reason you can't leave, well, call the police if you're you know, if they're keeping you there. But the fire department or oh, the fire department, yeah. But go go from room to room. You know that old, like, brain goldfish trick where, like, you're looking for something and you leave the room and then you forget what you're looking for? And then as soon as you walk back into that space, you remember what you were looking for? Mm -hmm. I don't know about brains that much. I don't pretend to be some kind of brain guy. But get out of your house. Get out of your zone. Get out of your space. And if you're, you know, especially if you're feeling kind of writer's blocky, just go. Go somewhere else for a little while. Meditate. Go somewhere
4: else in your own head if you have to. When I have an idea for a session, I usually try to do this on a session-by-session basis. It's really hard to do this for a whole campaign that you're planning, but um, when you have an idea for a session, you know what you're going to present to your players. I try to put myself in a player position and think, what would I be doing, generally speaking? not, Not every single solution to the presented problems, but how would I approach this kind of thing? And a lot of the biggest duds of games that I've ever run is when I threw something at players and didn't consider what they were supposed to do, and they don't know what they're supposed to do either because I didn't really know what they were supposed to do. It was just giving them a, a situation that, you know, some of them in hindsight are just intractable. But, you know, you have to... It's the game design part of the whole thing. You have to figure out where the fun is going to be in playing that session. So, you know, it's all well and good to have a lot of set dressing and music and whatever. But if you haven't hit the, the core concepts of, of game design for your,
0: your session, it's going to be weird and not work out the way that you hope. As far as inspiration for like NPCs or maybe even locales, watch something on TV or watch a movie that is not, that is outside of your, your regular genres that or that is something that is outside of what the ple- people around the table typically watch. You can pull all sorts of NPCs from just stuff that you normally are not exposed to. Just force yourself to be exposed to it. I've watched some absolutely terrible TV
5: mm-hmm.
0: looking for characters, and by God, I have found some gems of characters just because it's something that I hate and. Then I get to bring that hate out. <laughs> <laughs>
2: if you have a favorite actor, you know, could be a minor character actor, could be Brad Bradley Pitt, um, that's his name, I think. Uh, go through their IMDb, find other stuff they've been in, find something you've never seen before, watch a few clips on YouTube, find the movie. Especially if they're like a really good but like not super starring role type character actor, you're gonna you're gonna find some gems whether they're a terrible movie or not.
1: Uh, if you really like a character, look at the trope. Uh, I know we've mentioned TVTropes.com a lot. It will give you a lot of branch, so that way you can pull from all of these different tropes and make NPCs out of them very easily. So if you really like a character, just click on it. There's so many different routes that you can take when you're looking at TV Tropes and the structure of character. So go exploring. Internet, have fun.
4: If we get a, a little bit more specific, we've been talking a lot generally about, you know, designing a, a campaign, but as far as world building specifically, if we get into that for a minute, um, I've only done it two or three times, but I think it's important to work out the history of your world why it works the way that it does and make sure that it's, it's coherent. Um, you can come up with whatever kind of static idea, but you know, the, the beauty of things like uh, of Middle Earth or Westeros or, you know, pick your favorite fantasy setting is that it's got a lot of history. Everything is here because of all this other stuff that's happened. Yeah. And there's geography that matters. There's political powers, there's economic interests. All of those things should play into it, and that's that's the kind of detail that makes people feel like they're living in a, a living, breathing world.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you can just lift wholesale from history for plot, for characters, um, for anything about the world, because there's already a story there that's been told, and if you pick something that's relatively obscure, like, for instance, I have mind so much from a series that was on the History Channel called Gangland that was on in the um, late 2000s, early, early 10s. And I've lifted entire campaigns over just how the Crips and the Bloods went at each other. That's a perfect analogy for how two nation states would go at each other. Or the formation of um, various outlaw biker gangs. That's great for how how certain like bandits would have accumulated their power and their prestige in the world and how they might influence the world around them house acting outside of the law.
2: Don't get too granular. Uh, don't get wrapped up in planning out the, the index of battles and sites and histories, rise, fall of, of political houses That's all awesome, and if you have time to do that, do it. But when you're plotting your world's history, which is very important to know exactly, like you both just said and and touched on, know why things are the way they are right now. You know, why is it that men have their hands cut off at birth? Why is that a thing in the world? I don't know, figure it out. But you don't have to go through... Um, well, the, the Statute of 1937 actually dictated that a certain person with size 14 shoes, if their hands were a certain size, I don't care. It doesn't matter about that. Like, And especially battle-wise. like Don't plot out uh, just a million historical battles, because they're probably not going to come up. If you have time, if you want to, that's awesome. Great, do it. Maybe write a book about it. But for a game, you know, do what's functional. Do what is there to explain why things are the way they are. So that when a player tries to learn about it, or especially, like, subvert it or get around whatever's happening, you they know why that exists, so they know how to beat it. But I, I don't think you need to go, in my opinion, so far down the rabbit hole that you spend six months planning out a campaign. Because again,
1: yeah
2: have said this before, front-loaded, you're going to have a lot of stuff that you think you're going to be using. You're not going to use it. not going to use it. Some player is going to be like, I want to go there, and you're going to be like, fuck, I didn't
1: plan that. So... It is something that I've noticed in campaigns, but the past always affects the present. Not the entire past, but mostly either the extreme immediate or the, the, um, the, the intense, the intensity of something powerful that happened or something that was so odd that everybody had to take notice of it. So just know maybe like a few key points that might come up. Um, in my campaign, I made a family tree of something that happened in the past at this camp and it's important because it sets up the whole magic of the camp and having those players figure that out on their own if they want to go learn about this. Okay, well here you go. That's the Elliott Family Library. Have fun! Just so make sure that they have access to this history, but you know, only plan a few keynotes and the rest can be filled in later. That's something that helps me.
0: So how do you decide where the campaign is actually going, where you expect the campaign to go. How do you come up with the inspiration to... We've described how to do NPCs. We've described how to do kind of the history. But how do you plot out where you expect the campaign to go?
1: I turn to the players. I look at the characters that they're playing. And I want to give them the most fulfilling story for those characters. Because I always look at games like a story. Like, I'm a writer. That's what I do. So, for example, if I have all of these players who happen to be, like, anarchists, I'm like, okay, what is the most challenging thing for an anarchist to do? To deal with utter, complete control and having no power to subvert that. So I know that eventually it's going to be a big, butting head against the prince of something. So I tend to know more about the players of the game before I really figure out where that is. That's completely up to you and your game. I know a lot of people create worlds and create stories before we even start on character creation, but it it really helps me. I I create worlds and stories for characters that already exist, but that's just my personal taste.
4: I tend to come up with some inevitable historical uh, or history changing scale event that is happening in the world and whether the players choose to engage with it or not, some shit's going to go on and they can affect it. You know, they can maybe change the course of it a little bit or maybe subvert it altogether if they go right at it. But if they choose to not interact with it, then there's a cost of inaction and it's screwing up the world or, you know, whatever is going on. Um, so, you know, there's a, I like to have sort of a, a big meta storyline thing occurring and then the players and their experience is <clears throat> something that's running in parallel to that. And I think see how that goes. <laughs> I think the big meta storyline thing is an awesome way to do
2: it. If you're not comfortable or, or your game isn't of... Um, which is maybe a little boring if it's not, but that's alright. If your game doesn't have something happening that changes the lowercase world of the game, that's okay. Have characters, NPCs you've created... The players can interact with or not, but that NPC has a mission, they have something they're going to do, whether the players choose to engage or not. Or you could have a a certain um, introduction of some new element, um, whatever it may be, character, race, uh, invasion, apocalyptic event, doesn't matter. Some things that you have planned out that are going to happen, and then you don't have to worry about exactly which way your players are going. Just when it's time, when you choose, okay, it's time for this thing to pop. It's time for this thing to trigger. Stop and consider what your players have done, how they've interacted with the hints you've given them, what changes have they made, and and adjust accordingly. But either way, whatever you've planned is gonna it's gonna go
4: down. That puts a lot of, of pressure on the players. That's good. That's the that's the <clears throat> tension of the game. They've got to manage their economy of time and resources and whatever and. You know, if if they go and help village A, then next time they get around to village B, they find out it's been burnt out by raiders. And why weren't you here to help us? Blah, blah, blah. You know, that's like that's the kind of thing that that keeps people guessing. They don't know what the right decision is. There might not be a right decision. Um, There might just be degrees of less bad decisions. But that kind of stuff tends to get a lot of emotional purchase on people, I think. Usually,
3: when I come into thinking about what the campaign's going to be, it's less of a, like, meta storyline and more me being, like, like, with the first game I ran, I was like, wow, it'd be kind of cool if I did a traditional D&D setting, but, like, there was some cracks in reality and, like, Lovecraft creatures were starting to, like, kind of come through and, like, try to influence certain people, like, in the party. Are they going to respond to this offer of power? Are they going to refuse it? And then you know, this whole thing before I even knew what the characters were. And so I was like, okay, I think that idea is kind of cool. I'm just going to figure out the rest sort of around that idea, you know? And I kind of ended up doing what you were talking about with, uh, sort of having like time go on no matter where you are. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, there was like four cities they could visit in this game and they, and and a fort, like a military fort and they left the fort for last. And so by the time they finally got there, it was, like, completely overrun with Undead. Everyone had been turned. Like, it was complete apocalypse scenario, and they're all like, Wow, this sucks! And I was like, well, <laughs> you know, you guys let it go. And, I don't know. So, I, I guess, I know that's really unhelpful, in ber- that I'm literally just like, Man, you know what's cool? What if, what if there was a Star Destroyer? In, in in medieval
2: fantasy land, that, that sounds be cool. awesome. That is cool, mm-hmm. right? And I so like then just planning and stuff around that medieval fantasy but land. They definitely get enslaved, by the way.
4: Like, a <laughs> Rex. Yeah.
1: Um, a list of what ifs is super helpful, so that way you can just pull and pick to create worlds and settings. Um, I know I've a, I have a list of things that be like, okay, this, but this. And it's super helpful if you're going to do one-shots or if it's just a jumping point off.
2: Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but with onion.
4: Terrifying. I've done little flowcharts before about how how players are going to um, deal with this or that particular scene that I've put up. Sometimes I just kind of do it in my head and, you know, t- think about it a couple steps through. A long time ago, I used to get much more detailed about it, but if... Uh, If you have some contingency plans, um, at least roughly worked out, uh, it helps quite a bit. And in a perverse way, allowing the world to be kind of autonomous and, and making things go on with if players, you know, interact with it or not and changing it that way. That's a testament to the player's power (coughs) and the character's power in the game. So I think in some ways it makes people feel a little bit more Agency like what they do does matter, mm-hmm. even if it's what they don't do really screws things up. That's still something to say about the the effect that they have on the world. It's a unique way to play in a game. I didn't play in a game where the DM
2: did what you just said um, for the, my first couple years of gaming. They're pretty linear stories, and it's a really cool feeling. It's 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 scary but cool to realize shit like legitimately. We could have saved this village if we would have, you know, got the hint or not ran a grift on some town guards instead of going to the quest line. Mm -hmm. Like, we actually could have changed things. Oh, wow.
4: That's cool. A lot lot of people approach role-playing games like Mm -hmm. video game role-playing games where the the guy with the adventure dialogue is going to stand there and wait for you to come up and (laughs) push A until you do so. And, you know, you can go loot the town until it's time to go talk to that guy. But I think that's one of the cool things about tabletop role playing games is that you can adapt it as you go. It's a little more interesting that way, I think.
0: I always create a timeline of what if there's like a big bad guy or if there's some inescapable event that's going to be happening. I create a timeline of what's going to happen if nothing is done about it. Mm. For instance, like some big bad evil guy and they have plans for world domination, I write out the plans assuming that the player characters do not exist in the world, and how his plans are going to go from the start of the campaign to ultimate fruition. And then, as the campaign progresses, and hopefully the player characters will do some things to thwart his plans, I am in real time taking on the personality of That big, bad, evil guy and figuring out, well, shit, what am I going to do about these assholes who keep fucking up my plans? Mm -hmm. And part of that is you have to know going into the campaign, the resources and the limitations of who of of that big, bad, evil guy or that that force that is coming down the pike.
1: Mm -hmm. This is more akin towards whoever you're going to have as your main antagonist know who they are in this world. Uh, in their position of power, but also, like you said, come up with their plan. Know every single step. And why? And wh- that's really important. Uh, they're the protagonist of their own story. They're not the antagonist. And you need to look at it from that angle. Or else, if you're playing the bad guy and you're like, "Up, oh, this is the bad guy. Who cares about that guy? Nobody's going to care. Your players won't care. The world doesn't care. You need to look at this person like they are the main protagonist, they are the hero of their own story in this world. I
3: don't know if I agree with that. I think if you make a villain evil enough, and I'm not saying you make him a mustache twirler, like,
1: Mm -hmm. I have
3: tied you to the railroad tracks, can you save our heroes? (laughs) Dastardly Um, But like, I don't know, you make someone evil enough who, within reason, has reasonably fucked with the party enough, like, they're they're not going to care if he's sympathetic or not. They're going to want to take that asshole down.
1: Um, uh, it's a matter of you as a DM playing that character.
3: No, I, I know. But, like, I, what I'm trying to get at is, like, you can still view this person as an antagonist and accomplish that without, like, having to be like, oh, well, he's the hero of his own story, you know? He's doing all these other things, and this is why he's doing them, like, motivation. Yeah, you need mm-hmm. to figure out. Yeah. But... And maybe
0: this I'm is the way I've done it.
1: Maybe it's playstyle. Uh, I'm always akin to evil is not born; it is made. So make sure you build it into your world.
0: Well, sometimes you uh, have. Sometimes it's a good idea to make a scenario where the player characters are the ones who come in and kick the hornet's nest. Mm-hmm.
4: I, I do think it's a good idea to think about what if you've got one big bad antagonist. Think about what their resources are. To throw at the players and, you know, give proportional responses to what the players have done. The Emperor didn't send unlimited Star Destroyers after Luke and Han and Leia. You know, it was precise kind of thing. Um, he
3: sent that giant death ball thing. What is it? I think it's a, a death star. He didn't, he that, didn't send that after down them. Down. It
4: was doing its thing. Well, it was going and, to the, to and the base. And then they went and, and dealt with it. But that's that's the whole Rebel Alliance, though. That's what I'm saying, is the, like... Um, in the meantime, there's this whole empire that they've got to manage, and they've got ships stationed like they don't, here. They don't got and time there. for... They can't send the whole yeah, goddamn yeah. fleet after, you know, Hoth. Thinking about it as the, the antagonist also playing a counter game against the protagonists makes it feel realistic, and it, it's hopeless playing in a game where you think that the... The bad guy has just unlimited resources to continuously throw at you, you know? I yeah. know not everyone likes to play this sort of game, but I'd like
2: to talk a little bit about more sandbox-type games. Yeah. We, I think we've hit some really great points on very story-based, or um, apocalyptic, or world-changing event is about to happen, or a character is doing something, an NPC is, and you as players can stop them or join them but especially with post-apocalyptic games, I feel like, but it could be in any setting. Um, I, I know a lot of players who don't necessarily want that story. They just want to make a character, get in character, and then walk around, be bopping around, going from place to place, acquiring wealth, currency, weapons, and some people are very, very happy doing that. I like those games every now and again. One bit of advice I have for that type of game would be to, and I don't think we've mentioned it yet, create some really, really cool set pieces. Uh, You know, a town with three bridges, and each bridge was built by a different race. Uh, A a spacecraft with a weird crystal at its core. Like, just create some cool set pieces, create uh, a little bit of backstory about each set piece, why it is that way, a couple of factions of NPCs who are at those set pieces, and then just put them in your pocket. Put them in your toolbox. If the players decide to go there, pull them out and develop it, make some stuff up off the cuff. Maybe you'll have some warnings so you could have, like, a week to figure out what more to do there. Maybe not, but um, anybody else have any other
4: ideas about more sandbox-type games? I, th- I think that's a big deal. At the end of every session, ask the players where in the hell you guys are <laughs> going to be going next because it's really not fair to, to the GM to leave it on, oh, no, we'll figure it out next week. Yeah.
3: They show up and... You know, you, you had had a couple scenarios in mind. They're like, all right, so we want to go like burn down the, the capital planet. Like, we're going to just raise it to the ground. You're like, yeah.
4: <laughs> I don't you? have a name for that place yet.
3: <laughs> uh, okay.
2: It's called Unburnable.
3: Unber- b- Burnable. Like, it's, it's, uh, it's French.
2: Um, Burnable Sanders.
3: <laughs> I don't know. I think when it comes to sandbox games, in addition to set pieces, you also need to have sort of no- nothing really set in stone with the set pieces. Like, the set pieces need to be flexible enough that they can bend and not break. Um, because because it's a sandbox game, you could have, like, that three-bridge set piece going on, right? And, you know, maybe you have, like, a, oh, there's a, the town's gonna get sieged, and you guys have to, like, figure something out, right? And But if, if they choose to do this, you know, after a point where maybe, say, one of them's, like, gotten the loyalty of a mercenary company... You know, all of a sudden then your siege turns into, oh, well, we're just going to meet him in a pitched <laughs> battle. And you're like, okay, right? So you so you have to be able to, like, make those set pieces, like I said, sort of bend and not be able to just break. Because then, you know, if you, if you put all your eggs in that one set piece basket and they bring that mercenary army, you're going to be like, well, fuck.
0: <laughs> a lot of set pieces are modular enough that <clears throat> you can do what is called the magician's choice. The gist, of the, magician's, uh, the gist of the magician's choice is: you come to a fork in the road. Do you go right or do you go left? Players pick a direction, and then whichever direction they pick, down the road is that ambush. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Or yeah. down the road is that is that town that you had planned out, and uh, if you if so, like the in, illusion of choice, really the illusion of choice, yes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't recommend letting
2: your players catch on that you're doing that all the time, nor do I recommend <laughs> don't, doing that all the time. No. <laughs> but it is a powerful tool, especially if you're backed into a corner. But if you really just, you know, if you use it sparingly and use it properly, your players are happy. They they feel like they made a cool decision. They, they got to do something. And you're happy because you only had to plan on the one thing.
0: <laughs> the Magician's Choice is great for... You're at the very beginning of a session, and the players decide to do something completely unexpected. They decide to go. They decide, well, if you're in a in a post apocalyptic world, they decide, well, fuck this town. We're gonna we're gonna hop in our vehicles and drive 300 miles. You're like, all right.
2: So they effectively drive 150 miles, unbeknownst to them, loop around and <laughs> go back 150 miles. Well, it's a new place. Yes. Yes, it is. It's
4: the same town. You never leave. uh, I think it's perfectly permissible if you have something that you really want to be done in a particular place and you show the players or the characters that place and then they decide to just go fuck about in the countryside, to have effectively nothing happen until they go to that place. You know, anybody at any point could opt out of the adventuring lifestyle and go be a fucking dirt farmer somewhere. If there's nothing else going on, there's nothing else going on. And so, you know, you could easily say, yeah, a week goes by and you don't find much out here. What do you guys do for the next week? And just keep that up until they're like, well, we're bored. Let's fucking go see what's up with that town. I don't think that a a GM should necessarily have the responsibility to have some complicated storyline available regardless of what bizarre trajectory the group decides to go. And especially in a sandbox game, there's just too many different vectors that they could take. Some places are interesting, some places aren't. So, you know, if you want to go farm XP off of wild dogs, have at it.
0: And this something that works well for... Historical games, but also for like most po- post apocalyptic games, is that throughout the majority of human history, people didn't travel very far. So if your group is one of those pe- groups of people who actually do travel, um, they are going to be the instigators of whatever is going on in the new place that they're going to be. There's the phrase uh, going and seeding the elephant from the wild west, where the circus comes to town, and so everybody just goes to see this thing that they have only heard about your your player characters coming into the town could very well be that not like literally nothing is going on in the town until they show up and they they are the ones who bring about whatever plot they're the spice
4: you yeah,
3: spicing it up,
0: regardless of what game setting that you're playing in and what system you're using. I always like to modify the rules in some way. Unless you, unless you are playing a game setting with, it that was designed for the specific game system, there's always going to be some sort of adaptation that, that you have mm-hmm. to do. Especially if you are taking, taking the real world and trying to adapt that into a game or some aspect of the real world, like in a post apocalyptic game, taking, taking like real world firearms. There are decisions that are made in the creation of the game system, particularly like in generic game systems, which I really enjoy playing in. Um, there's always some sort of adaptation going on um, to make your adaptation of the system work in this world. D and D has done it many times where they've had the different iterations of D and D and each time they've changed the game system, it has had to have some sort of an impact on the like game settings that they have had out at the time. Most notable to me is like um, the Dark Sun campaign setting. That setting was written specifically for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Whenever 3rd Edition came out, whenever... It was banned, done, but there was a very big push to adapt it to the new system, introducing new rules, changing things that didn't exist in the original system and making and in in making those changes, it definitely changes the world itself. So as you're changing the system and adapting the setting to it, it's definitely a give and take that you have to be cognizant of whenever you're creating your campaign setting. Yeah, the game system affects
4: everything. It's the fundamental physics of the game that you're playing. It's not enough to say, "Oh, grab a D twenty and that'll work." You know, whatever random D twenty version that'll be. Pick a system that, if not as perfect, is purpose built for that kind of game. At least pick a general setting that has a pretty well flushed out, you know, set of books for that thing. Savage Worlds has got Quite a few different ones. GURPS has got everything. But, yeah, if you're going to play some game that's like, uh, you know, some Star Wars kind of uh, high adventure sort of deal, you don't want something that's real lethal. You don't want somebody getting shot once and being dead. That's not the feel of the game. <laughs> and, I mean, the system is what the players or what the players are doing. That's the game that they're playing. So make it reflect the experience that the characters are having. I think the same could go for adapting an existing campaign setting
2: or module. If you don't like something about it, change it. I mean, don't feel locked in to, man, you know, I really want to do this game, uh, uh, I really want to do this system, and there's this really great module, I really want to do that, but I really don't like that there is a town of dwarves right nearby because I am racist and hate dwarves. Just take the dwarves out. Also, you know, go 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 seek out some dwarves and talk with them. You know, like get over your racism.
4: Would that be more ableist? Oh no, not not like not like little people.
0: Oh, I mean like big bearded dwarves. Oh, you mean like Gimli?
4: Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: It would be ableist though. You're right. If it were little people, it, it would be it'd be ableist. Gimli still can't reach the top shelves. He can't jump either. No. He has to be thrown. He's a good sprinter.
4: <laughs> Natural. <laughs> <laughs> Go over short distances. <laughs> also, use a character <clears throat> creator, a random character generator. Every major game system has one out there somewhere. Eclipse Phase does not. <laughs> <laughs> Man, can I just go on record and say fuck Eclipse Phase? <laughs> I'm I'm enjoying your game, but as a system, what the fuck were you guys thinking? The setting is fucking incredible. Yeah, I cannot recommend great. the Eclipse Phase setting enough. It's rad. But, God, it's just too much. Clunky. Saw, too much, man! I saw open betas out for second edition. I haven't looked at it yet. Mm. Uh, I hope it's halved. Yeah. that That
2: is how I'd recommend planning. You know, this is right back in line with the topic we're currently on. Uh, eclipse phase is a wonderful setting. Way too many rules. Way too complex. So what we've done, what I've done, is pick and choose. There are massive swaths of things, rules, that I don't use. I don't give a shit about them. You kind of boiled it down to what works for us, and it's fun, and it is coherent. No one's getting blindsided by something, so you know that you want your players to feel like it's a fair system, whatever you do to it. Um, but yeah, don't, you know, just, just Frankenstein that shit. You
3: know? uh, now note, creators of Eclipse Phase, if by some miracle you hear this, and like to come on and debate Jordan uh, about your game system. Uh, you can email us at.
0: <laughs> you can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. <clears throat> Do it. Also, like sponsor us. Like we'll, we'll we'll come back. We'll edit this. We'll be shills.
2: <clears throat> we'll be shills. We'll we'll change our tune. We're basically, gaming journalism. No,
3: we're not shuckers. <laughs> you,
4: you made cyberpunk Phoenix Command for the twenty first century. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, please come so we can teach you how the order of operations actually works. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to introduce a character
2: to my Eclipse Face game called Pendas. <laughs> Does anybody else have any points? Uh it's my birthday yesterday.
1: Happy birthday. Fuck thank Kyle. you. I just want
2: to say that like September is the best month. It's like the Goldilocks month, not too hot. Not too cold. It's, it's in the habitable zone pretty, pretty hot year. today. No, it was gorgeous today. It's pretty nice hot. out. Beautiful. It's, it's like a, eighty perfect degrees. For our that, is, about that is not things. too hot,
1: man. And it's pretty, it's pretty hot. And
2: you get the you get the, a little bit of summer, a little bit of fall. It's my birthday. It's a great month. That's all. That's all I got.
0: All right, guys. <laughs> what do you say we stop this bullshit and start rolling some dice? Yeah. This has been a production of Alien Familiar Media. You can find past episodes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. This production is protected under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Music for this episode is Suburban Outlaw by Forget the Whale and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.